The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the Son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Today on The Murder Diaries, we're speaking with Lily Greer, the founder of the Tina Greer Project, an organization meant to bring awareness to domestic violence, homicide, and missing persons, all in honor of her late mother, Tina Louise Greer. We spent a long time talking to Lily and learned so much from her experiences. Some of the topics we touched on were true crime ethics, as well as Lily's fight for justice not just in her own mother's case, but for those who have been impacted by a loved one's disappearance or murder. Lily has proven herself to be a voice for the voiceless, and we can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. Now, here it is. Thanks for joining us today, Lily. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast to talk about true crime, the Tina Greer Project, and your experience as the child of a victim of true crime. Why don't we get started by letting you introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, my name is Lily. I live in Sydney, Australia. And essentially why we're here today is to talk about my mum and the fact that she was murdered. So my mum was murdered when I was 13. Technically, it was a missing persons case until 2022. However, it has been found that she has been murdered, although we do not have a body and the main suspect has unfortunately died. So we're left with... um, not much to go off, but I started the Tina Greer project last year in 2020 when the coroner's court here in Australia thought it was unnecessary to keep looking into the murder and the cause of her death and kind of just um, wanted to forget about it. So I was very angry, as you can imagine, and I needed to do something and I needed public support because a thing here in Australia is that to get these cases off the ground after they've gone like cold and to keep them going is there needs to be public interest. That's the key terminology. So I was like, what better way to get public interest than to start an organization dedicated to my mom and raise awareness and get everyone talking about it. So here we are. (laughs) Often when we're researching cases, it's difficult to find any information about the victim prior to their disappearance or their death. I think it's because a lot of true crime content solely focuses on the morbid details of what happened that day. And that's something that Paige and I are really trying to change in how we approach true crime and the cases that we cover on our podcast. We'd like to remind our listeners that the cases we hear are about real people who loved and were loved in return. Their stories began long before the worst day of their lives. So with this in mind, will you please tell us a little bit about your mom, who she was and what she was like? We'd love to hear more about Tina. Yeah. So my mom was a young mom, which had its advantages. She was very energetic, athletic, and very like witty. And I'd say like quite blunt and um, not afraid to tell you what she thinks, which was, it was always a laugh. I guess the most fond memories I have doing like activities going swimming. She taught me how to swim, obviously, bike riding, going on picnics. We used to make these little wind chimes out of shells. So we're like hammering in shells and putting them up around the house. So yeah, it was just lots of crafty, always fun. Yeah. She, she treated me like very, like with a lot of respect, um, like an equal, like she was kind of like we're best friends. So yeah, she's, she's very open with me as like a young child. And yeah, it was like a very 
tight-knit relationship. What's your favorite memory of your mom? You told us a little bit about the things you guys did together, but is there a specific memory that comes to mind when you think of your mom? Like a moment in time you want to relive that you would want to share with others just so we can kind of understand what the bond was like between the two of you. It's not one per se, but we used to often go for like really long drives in the car, like road trips. And we would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk like the whole time. And like the windows would be down and we had like the heat on our feet and then yeah, the cold air in the windows and just like singing, listening to music and then and or talking like for like the whole two hours. It was just like best friends. And <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was, those were nice. Where did you guys like to drive to and what music were you listening to? I have to know. It's so funny. I was probably a bit young, but we were listening to a lot of Eminem back in the day. <laughs> like, oh, it's still Eminem. <laughs> Two white girls, I guess. <laughs> um, and what we were doing was we were, so it links into the story, but so where we lived or where I lived was very far away from her partner's house. So we were driving, like she would either be dropping me home Backstory, I didn't live with my mom for about six years prior to her going missing. So she would come and pick me up and we'd go and drive there. Or once we started living together, we would drive, be driving to that property. So that's yeah, very far distance, so lots of driving. Through the Tina Greer Project, you're working so hard to keep your mom's memory alive. You're fighting for change in domestic violence awareness and even policy. But hearing all these stories you're telling us, it's obvious your mom was so much more than a victim of domestic violence. How do you want her to be remembered by those who hear her name and hear her story? Just as a full human. So everyone has a background and a past. And often with these cases, particularly if someone has a colorful life, the negative things get shown. Media likes to portray like an ideal victim and nobody's really ever an ideal victim. I am lucky because she is white and she was quite beautiful. But in saying that, I know that a lot of people don't have that privilege of being like white and young. But even though she has those aspects, she still um, used to. It's gotten better, but used to get treated quite bad in the media after she went missing because who she was dating, who murdered her. She was dating a very violent man who was dangerous and a criminal. So that kind of like tainted or taints her public image. But how I would love to be and like preserve her memory is just like people are full and they have multiple aspects of themselves. And how I know my mom was just this very passionate, fierce, loving mom um, who would do anything for me. That's how I remember her. Obviously, your comfort level is of the utmost importance to us. So this is only if you're comfortable talking about this. But if you don't mind discussing your mom's case and where it's at right now, that way you can give our listeners a little more insight into what you're doing with it on that front. Yep. So basically, she was in a domestic violence relationship. It was like four or five years prior to her murder. We had actually left him and got in our own place. Subsequently, we were stalked. Now it seems to be, it would make sense that it was him. Don't know that for sure. But yeah, it was just like this long drawn out time of a lot of fear for my mom and myself. And yeah, so I was 13 and we had just like started our new life together and we went school shopping. She then went out because when our house was being stalked, her car was vandalized. So she went out to fix her car at his property and we were also very, very poor. 
So we didn't have a washing machine. So she was like, oh, do our washing while we're out there. She went to see him. And then the next day she was supposed to come back and pick my friend and I up for a sleepover. This never happened. And then that started the whole journey and where we are today. So her body is still yet to be found, as I said before. And basically the case is now like a cold case or it's not really being investigated. It's at the point where the police have handed it over to people here in Australia called like the coroner's court. And as I said before, they said, no, we're not going to hold an inquest. So I started like this advocacy campaign of why we need an inquest and just legally here in Australia, it ticked all the boxes. So I was going a bit crazy thinking like, what? (laughs) Are we reading the same evidence and looking at like the same facts? But I petitioned and advocated for like seven months and got like 22,000 signatures from the public to show that it was in the public interest. And now we have a inquest coming up. It's set for August at the moment. So an inquest is kind of like a non-criminal proceeding where they bring all the key witnesses and people that worked on the case and see like what went wrong, if they could find her body. That's kind of like, I'm not sure if they have inquests in America. But leading up to that, so yeah, every step of the way has been like very different, but it's super frustrating at the moment. We don't have all the evidence, so it might not be in August. Like it's just everything's always up in the air and it's, you go like forward a bit and then you go back like 10 steps. Are you working with a legal team or is it just you? I am, but obviously like nobody cares as much as me, right? So it's a, there's, whilst we don't have all the evidence, there's still a lot to look through. I've read it all. My lawyers have as well. But if you don't know a person, especially if it's like 10 years, 11 years ago, most of the people are dead and you don't know a person. It's really hard for like someone else to come in and read all of this and like figure out which witnesses would be important. So I like have the advantage in some way where I knew a fair amount and like I know which names to look at and what actually happened because it's surprising there's um like factually incorrect details that are being like spoken about as fact literally last week they gave a big spiel in court about like our life and it was really graphic so it's it's not even just like the media or like the general public that betrays people really badly it's like literally the courts as well and there's a difference between like betraying people factually and then like doing it in a trauma-informed way so you can still be factual, but you don't necessarily have to like dig them another grade and <laughs> I mean, how you talk about them. What you were saying brings up something else we'd like to touch on anyway. First of all, I'm so sorry the courts reported wrong information about your mom's case. That's both heartbreaking and maddening. But you also mentioned trauma-informed coverage of cases. Will you touch on that from your perspective as the daughter of someone who was a victim of true crime? Yes. So, for instance, last week we had a hearing to decide when the inquest would be and whatnot. And the person on the other side, it's its really weird. They're not on the other side. They're supposed to be working in conjunction with, like, my legal team. And, yes, I do have a legal team. Sorry, I didn't answer your question. I do, but I'm kind of, like, directing them um, and telling them, like, do this, do this, do this, do this. So it's like, should I just represent myself at this point? But anyway... So last Friday, we had a hearing to determine when this would be and the issues and witnesses. And this lady gave like a 25-minute speech about our lives. And one, she didn't send it over beforehand. And she's also new to the case. I've never met her, never spoken to her. And often with these things is like a summary probably gets written up and then passed along when they hand it over. 
And it's like, well, you kind of need to read it all and understand for yourself what happened. So just small things like dates being wrong, it's super disrespectful in my opinion because it's like, you just get the small facts right. <laughs> like, come on. For instance, my mom coming from a background of domestic violence, her mom died when she was young, so she became reliant on alcohol and things like that. So just how you would speak about that would be how I'm speaking about it, not like she was an alcoholic and she worked as a stripper for a period in her life. So how you would say that is like, I feel like I'm I'm entitled to say it, but not like a stranger, if that makes sense. So you'd be like, she worked in the adult industry, just like things like that. Just like framing, how you frame a person, especially in these cases is really important. So it's like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to tear her down or find out what happened to her? And just because she did those things doesn't mean that she didn't, like she didn't deserve to die, you know? And this may just be for further clarity. We are in this space and not that it's your job to teach us as we go along, but that's why we appreciate when people like yourself are willing to talk to us too. When speaking about your mom, if we had the title of the place where she worked, is it okay to mention something like that as opposed to saying adult industry or worked as a stripper? It could say she mm. was working at XYZ club or whatever it mm. may be called, mm. but does that mm. work? Well, now it's really open. Like I love how like open everything is in terms of like adult, the adult industry and especially with COVID, like it's so woke now, but then, and like the older audiences are like, oh, this person, this is a But interestingly, she didn't do that. To my knowledge, she didn't, wasn't working on that, in that field of work because she got cut off from everything and the whole community. She wasn't working, was financially reliant on him, had no friends, that type of thing. So she didn't actually have a job when she died. Yeah. She was isolated. But um, she she was also a hairdresser. So, yeah, that's one, one of her other jobs. <laughs> but those are just some of the examples. And obviously, like, the typical narrative that runs around is, um, why didn't she leave him? Why did she start dating a criminal? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You're like, come on, guys. I thought we were past this. Like, yeah. It's so hard to believe that you're still hearing that in 2023. Have we not learned? And I think that goes and points towards being trauma-informed for sure. Because when you're trauma-informed, you understand what that cycle of abuse is like. And if people, I mean, you could literally look it up. There's websites, there's textbooks. There's like, there's so much out there that you can find that explains why abuse is cyclical and why people find it hard to leave abusive relationships. So I can't believe you're still hearing that. Literally from the coroner's court, like that's like one of the reasons they initially didn't want to do it is because they were saying like her death could not have been prevented. There's no evidence to suggest that she was ever going to leave him. But in reality, we had our own place and she did leave his house and they were separating and then she was murdered. And that is the case with a lot of women. They're more, you're more at risk of being murdered when you leave your partner. Like that's the most at risk you're ever going to be of being murdered is when you leave abusive relationships. So it's just frustrating to have the fact that we did leave and all of these factual things like we all know now. But yeah, that's just these people. <laughs> is there anything that was presented that was misinformation that you'd like to clear up now about your mom's case? The main one would be, and I get it a lot, is why are you saying he murdered her is the the main one. Like you can't say that he murdered her. How do you have proof of that? 
And the annoying thing is technically there's no body and he's dead. So no, I don't have a body as proof. However, (laughs) she was abused literally like in like life-threatening situations which were recorded by neighbours and reported to the police and the police did attend but they back in 11 years ago, 12 years ago, they didn't provide any resources or support to her. So, for instance, she was hit by his car. So he was like trying to get her in a car and onlookers saw but. He then swerved and the back of his ute tray like hit her and like she literally like went in the air and then like people were concerned from the public. So they were like, come, come with us. And she was like, no, 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 it's my fault. I'm like, just got in the car. And another one was him actually trying to chase her down in the car. And then from my own personal experience with it, like I didn't speak to her for three days and I thought she was dead. This is when we didn't live together. And then later on, she was like, no, he hit me over the head with a bar stool and I had to clean up my own blood from the floor. So I'm just rattling them off because it's just like literally what happened. But um, and another incident, I was like 11. She called me and she was like, goodbye. Like, he is going to shoot me. I love you. So that you've got all of this leading up to her disappearance. The fact that he was the last person to see her. He was very violent, very well-connected criminal. The fact that he said that she left at 9.30 in the morning, she wasn't due to pick me up until 5.30. The next day, on the Thursday, so she dropped me off on the Wednesday, supposed to come back on the Thursday. On the Thursday, he buys a new queen-size mattress. She's not reported missing until the Saturday. However, this other there's an, another man that goes to the dump and takes all these plastic bags to the dump, takes a mattress to the dump. He lies and says that she left at 9.30, but her phone is switched off on like a Friday or something. Like if the cell towers picked it up in his property because it's like a big remote rural area. Um, Her car was found seven kilometres from his house. So there's all these things where it's like he murdered her. Like (laughs) just saying like it's, um, yeah, so it's frustrating. And we don't know if they did a good job with their forensics. Like that's the point of what we're doing now is to find out if they've missed something or, yeah. So that's the main thing that I get asked so often and it pisses me off. I actually did see one of your posts about the barstool incident and I think it said something about you were going through her things recently and you uncovered her medical records from that incident or after the incident where the doctors attended to her and her massive injuries that she received from that encounter. Yeah, yeah. And she disclosed violence. Um, So as I said, she had a like a dependency on alcohol for a long time, which is interesting. It's it's crazy how multifaceted people are because although you've got that, I never saw it and I like lived with her. So it's just wild to be like people are so complex, right? Like the best mum, but like can have all of these on like all this happening on the side. But yeah, she had to disclose to she was at rehab and she had disclosed to them that like he's gonna kill me. And again, no, it's documented, but no resources or support were given. Is there anything else about your mom's case that you want our listeners to know or how there is a way that our listeners can help you in your fight for justice going forward? That's a hard question. The case is so like far-reaching. I suppose it would just be like a general word of advice would just be like, actually instead of commenting and asking like questions just like maybe in my case you literally could just scroll to the next video and I probably explain it (laughs) so just just like research the case or like look up some articles or at least two if if you can be 
you know, like two, you're probably going to get a general idea of what's happening. But in terms of help, I suppose the help that I need or needed most was the signatures, which we've gotten. But just like public support is the main thing and like following the journey and yeah, because maybe I'll need, uh, maybe I'll start another petition for something else. Who knows? Something's probably going to go wrong in the future. (laughs) But yeah. The website for the Tina Greer Project states that your mom, Tina Louise Greer, was the impetus for getting this project off the ground. It's dedicated to her. It's inspired by her. And as I was looking into it, I was reading everything on the website and it states that it's meant to be a space for educational and productive conversations, provoking change concerning domestic violence, homicide, and missing persons. Will you tell us more about that statement? And then we can talk about the organization as a whole. Yes. So... Obviously, I'm like, this case crosses across like three different broad areas, which I like have personal experience with. But these areas are so huge and it impacts so many people. But it still feels like there's not even just like the myths that we were talking about before about like, why didn't she leave? So I really wanted to create a space where I can talk about my experiences because um hundred percent sure there's many people going through similar things. Talk about my experiences, create a community and like let's start having discussions and talk about these issues that no one seems to be getting. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's just been mainly through lots of online advocacy, having like this space where people can go and watch a video. Maybe it's a funny video like about missing persons and like what not to say to a family member that has a missing loved one because just the rhetoric, especially around like missing family members is very like interesting. Like people don't mean it, but you, it's, it's pretty difficult. Like I'd say out of all of these aspects, they're all very difficult, but having a missing loved one is so draining and it is, these are all isolating, but the type of grief that you go through isn't like a normal cycle of grief because you you don't get to get to the end it's called ambiguous loss so it's just like this limbo phase of just going crazy essentially it's wild and it's really difficult to get through so yeah it could be something about like don't ask a missing person's family member what they thought happened to the body like simple things like that where people like can just watch it and be like, oh, shit, I've said things like this. <laughs> like, whoops. And usually, I don't mind because it happened to me at a young age. I've had, like, kids, like, grown up with really blunt questions. But, yeah, even just knowing that, like, other families are like, oh, my God, this is so relatable, it's just really nice. And having, since getting into this sphere and meeting people in the, like, missing persons community, homicide community, it's just, like, their family. So it's, like, this community is you feel like you're related almost because it's like having these experiences together and like the similar circumstances. It's just like we we get each other. So it's really nice to connect with people. I feel like I'm speaking with someone that is so well educated and articulate on these kind of newer understandings of being trauma-informed, what that's like, using phrases like ambiguous loss and learning these things. Where did you learn all of this stuff and where do you think others can learn more about that? I learned about ambiguous loss through... So when I started, last year started, I was like, I need people who are in similar situations to get their advice and like what have they done because I need support. 
and this charity here in Australia called MIST, they do a lot of work into helping missing persons' families and dealing with the media and they're like really amazing charity. I would recommend looking into them. But um, her name's Lauren, the CEO, and she introduced the term to me, uh, ambiguous loss. And I was like, this is perfect because I've never been able to describe this feeling until now we have a word, right? So it's like just makes it easier. And it's like, oh, this is like a legitimate thing. But yeah, it's just about... I work in the domestic violence space. Obviously, once you educate yourself, it's easier to handle your emotions and understand. And I also needed to because seemingly professionals in these spheres didn't. And I just felt like deeply offended that people can be speaking to victims of crime like this. And I thought like it needs to change. And people don't listen to you unless you have facts and education to back you up. Like it's just, they don't care about your emotion. You've just got to separate yourself and talk about statistics, literally. So it sounds like being involved in communities <laughs> like MIST or in communities like your current workspace, working in the sphere of domestic violence, that's where you're keeping in touch, involving yourself, not just with your experience through your mom, but your experience through your work and what you're also doing to take care of yourself and leaning on communities like MIST and things is a great way to learn. So looking into similar communities and their websites might have some good resources. Yeah, everyone that I've ever come into contact with is so open about giving you advice and just being there as a support person. Yeah, it's it's great once you do connect with these people, definitely recommend. In the Tina Greer Project mission statement, you talk about change in regards to domestic violence and homicide and missing persons cases. What does that look like for you? It's so broad. I would love most things to change in these circumstances and situations. Initially, my goal is to go off what I need personally changed for the benefit of my mom's case. Like I'm being quite selfish in that regard, but obviously it impacts a lot of other people. All the things we've already spoken about, but the systems here, and I'm sure in America, are pretty sh- excuse my language, and they don't care about the people who are potentially a victim of crime or their family members. So I'm wanting like the rhetoric around all of these things to change as well as like the actual laws and systems that support these people or that should have protected them and prevented their murders. So it's it's quite all-encompassing. I've noticed even the ones that do care, it's a lack of resources. It's so often put on the family to put flyers up and canvas and everything like that because they don't have the physical bandwidth to do that. So the more that families can do, this is just based on experience, understanding, you know, American cases, the more that they can do, the better. But how completely hard is that when you're literally like, grieving with this ambiguous loss of where is my loved one or I'm pretty sure this is what happened to them but I'm up against XYZ to prove it just like the situation that you know might describe what I've been hearing from you so it's even when they do care it's like how do we get there (laughs) oh yeah it's disgusting like there's I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll talk about it shortly but just the lack of support is it's horrible Like I feel so bad for people and like deeply connected to them when they're going through this because it's so isolating and you literally don't know which way to step, where to look, what to feel. It's, yeah, you can't describe the feeling. That's what's incredible about you, Lily. You took this horrific experience and 
you were able to look at it from all different perspectives to figure out what needs to be done to prevent further trauma and adverse impacts of victims of true crime. And you actually spoke about that with Parliament recently. You gave them a list of six recommendations for them to consider as they go forward and in order to not further traumatize and further victimize families of victims of true crime. So we would love if you could cover some of them or all of them if you're comfortable. Yeah, so it was a very cool experience, actually. I'm thankful that they asked me to speak. But here, in particularly Queensland, which is like another state above where I am currently, they're doing a massive inquiry into how victims and families of victims are treated by these systems, which is great. We'll see if anything actually changes. But they invited people who have experienced the system to like write a submission and I thought, well, I need to write recommendations so they actually take it seriously and like need to have peer-reviewed research in there and whatnot just because then people will start to listen. So it's all well and good to talk about your feelings, but it doesn't change much. So I, I kind of made six broad recommendations based on my experience with these systems. So the first one was specialty services for children. So basically, when I went missing, I had no support and I found out what happened to my mum through the media and through Google. So that in itself was very traumatic and I needed support as a 13-year-old to go through this experience. So I want police and these types of services that families need to be trauma-informed and a way to do that is to provide specialty child officers and support officers like case managers. I'm not sure like the terminology use in America, but it's basically like a, a person that is responsible for your, your case and looks after your, your emotional well-being, gives you updates, all those types of things. So that's the big one that I think, because kids don't come out on the other side unless they have support or are really lucky. Like usually their endings aren't great and it's, it's not something that promotes a good, happy life if you don't have support after a crime. The second one was, and it's very personal to me, is in circumstances where police can't prosecute or investigate, that the police need to provide a legal explanation as to why and actually just have a conversation and open dialogue. It's like, we couldn't do it because of this, 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 instead of just saying we couldn't do it, case is closed, sorry. So that's been like a major frustration of mine. Even just, it will be uncovered in the inquest, but even things like it's heartbreaking to hear is like because it's been such a long case one of the officers that worked on it as like a junior officer and then obviously is now senior officer was like look if it was up to me back then I would have taken it to a jury so to hear things like that you're just like like (laughs) just it's it's rough um so yeah just opening a dialogue so families know like we couldn't do it because of these reasons The third one was having like an external review board because often, I'm sure it's the same in America, these cases don't get re-looked at critically until years later. And having an external review board to see that these services, such as the police, are doing the right thing and like checking the right boxes, doing everything they can is really critical, especially in like the early years. So having an external review board for missing persons and homicide cases is another recommendation I made. Four, really passionate about, is the education in domestic violence of all coroner's court employees. So the coroner's court are the people that decide uh, if someone's dead and the, they would, they're the ones that said, no, her death couldn't have been prevented, just saying like crazy things. So it's, it's interesting here that these people 
literally would deal with hundreds of deaths in domestic violence and they don't have education on domestic violence. Even just simple things like facts that we were talking about before, which is it's very apparent they don't have education. So mandated training was the fourth one I suggested. Five, similar realm. So once I found out that they weren't going to investigate the case and like what happened to my mom, they just sent an email and it was like this 20-page document of like all these really graphic things and they didn't, no one told me that this was coming and what my rights were, what I could do and just giving me like support. So in cases where these documents are going to be sent out, the coroner's court must call people and like give them their rights give them the support. If you have any questions, answer them. Like simple things like that. Like I I assume most normal people would just do that. <laughs> like you you would call your friend and be like, hey, I'm going to email you this really heavy document. Like, are you okay? This is what we can do. Like talk them through it. But yeah, unfortunately they don't I, do that currently. <laughs> I saw that video you posted after receiving it. It was raw and real. And a peek inside what it's like for these families when these people are just quote unquote doing their jobs and sending out emails. It's not just an email, especially to the family on the other end. And I think that's your point in saying like these documents, when they go out, they need to make sure that the person is in the right mental space to accept it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the regard. I think I spoke about like, it's somebody's life we're talking about here, right? Like you're telling me if my mom's dead or alive and if you're going to look into it further. So it's just so incredibly heartbreaking to know that so many people are going through this and not having any support. Uh, so that was one of the recommendations I made is just like having, just being a normal human and supporting families. And then six was, so we have this thing called like victim services in Australia, but currently it doesn't do its job that well particularly for missing persons and like their families. So creating a special category so people can become eligible for the supports that they provide. So I wasn't eligible and and still not eligible for a lot of support that these services provide because she was a missing person. And it was, although it was in homicide investigation, it it didn't allow me to seek any of those supports. So just getting a new category there so that these cases, instead of just blanket ruling them out, you can look into the case and be like, oh, this person would actually is eligible, but they don't fit into our little boxes. So no. <laughs> yeah. So those were the six that I made. I, I could write 20 more, but those were the six I made recently. If you had to add one or two more, what would they be? In that system, uh, you have to be critical and I chose six because the six is a lot and I, I, they'll probably pick two to change. But outside of that system and just generally, so we're talking about true crime here right now, I would say, and I think one of your questions leads to this, but how people and like true crime, especially I know it's a really hot topic and everyone loves it, how people even consume true crime and who is allowed to produce true crime should be really critically looked into. Because, for instance, um, you may have seen it. An example would be The the Stranger. It's an Australian film based on Daniel Morecambe, who was a little boy who was murdered here in Australia. And that film was made. And I, it doesn't say that this is based off this story. And I, I'm just watching it because I started watching it. And then I realised this is Daniel Morecambe. Like, why? I, I can't believe because it's like everyone knows this case so well in Australia. I looked into it and the family does not support it. And they just made this whole damn ass movie without the support and acknowledgement of the family that they're making a movie about. 
So it's just like I can't believe that people, there should be like rules and mandates around who, like getting consent, come on. (laughs) Like This is people's lives and their child and you're making like a movie about it and profiting off it. Oh, um, (laughs) if that ever happened to me, I'd be like, we're going to court. Um, So, yeah, just things like that about really being critical about who is allowed to reduce true crime and talk about true crime because it's so traumatic for people. You want the right people to be asking questions and making movies. Like, go go ahead and do it if you have the support of the family, but if you don't, don't do it. Simple. That's really similar to what happened with Ryan Murphy's Dahmer Project. Yes. They literally recreated one of the sister's victim impact statements and she was blindsided by it because she didn't know it was going to be coming out and they didn't tell her that she was going to be represented in it. I mean, I can't imagine a more vulnerable time than when you're sitting in court telling your brother's murderer what that person took away from you. And to have that recreated without your consent, taken away from you for profit, I can't imagine. It's like you don't care. Like you just want to make a film and make money or make a TV series. Like you do not care about these people if you're doing that. Like it's disgusting. It's disgusting. You have an Instagram post that reads, quote, has true crime gone too far? And in the caption, you discuss this love-hate relationship you have with the media as a family member of a true crime victim. We heard a little bit about your experience earlier, but I'm curious what overall if you can go a little more in depth about what struggles you've come up against. And not to completely derail that question, but you had another post on your Instagram. It was about an article that you um, participated in, but it was completely written in the first person. And then you put an annotation in the caption of the post that said, no, I didn't actually write this article. And I just thought, wow, what a shock that they would have the audacity to write this article as you publish it and see no problem with it. So anyway, that's a really long-winded way of saying, let's talk about true crime ethics and get a little more perspective on your love-hate relationship with the media as a family member. Yeah. So the media is necessary in these cases. Like You need it to get publicity and you need the public to care. And you can't do that without the media and it's really useful in some cases the media in particular when I was uh, petitioning for an inquest it's very helpful to have like 10 different media outlets contacting the coroner's court or the police saying like what are you doing about this case what are you doing about this case because it's like it doesn't mean anything if it comes from me but if it comes from 20 different outside sources it's really great so that is like why we need the media and what is good about the media but what is bad about the media and like generally true crime and the discussions and coverage of it is that often people and like producers or whoever's running these shows, writing the articles has a clear outline of what they want the story to be and they want you to fit into how they understand the story. And often they're not concerned with how you feel and just like simple things like self-care and aftercare when you're talking about the case and just simple things like sending the questions ahead of time. Um, this could be a whole podcast episode in itself, but um, essentially there's so many cases where you'll be interviewed and it's just like, tell us your deepest, darkest feelings. And then they'll just cut, 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 cut. And you'll have like this two minute snippet and then they'll just create this whole narrative around it. Yeah. There's no like input from families about how things are created and the narratives that 
they want to put out into the media. And then just the simple things of like people not even taking the time to look into the case or do their research and then going into an interview with you and asking like the silliest questions. Like if you want to interview a family member, do it, but do your research and don't ask like, like I said before, don't ask how do you think she died? Like I have 20 million reasons how she could have died. I've I've thought about them all. Like, do you want to, I invite you to go through this experience and then answer that question without getting angry. So just things like that um, can be really difficult. And the fact that there's a lot of money in the media and with true crime at the moment. So all, all of these families, like you don't get anything from it other than publicity, but it just sucks sometimes to know that they're making so much money off your life story and like how they want to portray it is kind of like this. Surely that it just feels wrong. But again, you want the publicity. So you just do it. And it's like, it's like give or take. So if I don't know, I'm not saying like, I want your money, <laughs> like whatever, I don't care, but at least do it right. Like I don't care about that. But if you're going to take and profit off this, do it correctly at least. Yeah, the first person thing was very strange and it's, yeah, definitely, and I'm not, I'm obviously it's emotional, but I don't tend to be like, I'm so, you know, um, depressed and my heart breaks and aches for my mum. Like it does, but I'm not going to speak to people like that and it's just not like who I am. And And another funny thing is often when they do a lot of like media, they always want to take photos of you and they're like, bring a photo of your loved one to the park and just look at it and look sad. <laughs> no, <laughs> I've done it before because I thought I had to, but it's just so weird. And it's like, yes, I'm sad, but I'm not going to like sit here and like hold it. <laughs> it's, just, it's so weird. Well, it's also a misrepresentation of your grief. Like that is such a personal experience for you. Everyone's going to do it differently. It's weird that they would want this when it really just comes down to it being a photo up of what they think represents your grief. Yeah. So it's an interesting space uh, that needs a lot of change. And yeah, like I, I think in even simple things like university and in journalism courses, that there needs to be a topic that's discussed properly. And, you know, if the universities are open to it. Like I would love to go and talk to a journalism class and talk to them about like what they're going to be doing and how they'll be impacting people's lives that are on the other side of true crime. It becomes kind of irritating as, you know, we wish that we could have a family member involved in every single episode, but it can be difficult sometimes. It just doesn't work out and we either can't cover the case because of that or something else works out where we still can, but they're not as involved. You know, we get permission, Mm. but they prefer not to be involved. And so thinking about that article that's writing in the, in the first person as you, that how are we supposed to know as a tertiary source that that isn't a primary source, an interview or an article like from you? We yeah, it doesn't say. And what if we what if we didn't see that post from you? Or what if mm. some, that person didn't see it yet? And we've got something coming out. It's like, it can be so irritating, which is why we do love doing these interviews. And they are so important to us. And... Our monetization is at a very low level. So it basically just helps us continue to be able to do it. But we've also discussed ways of, you know, as that may or may not increase as our show grows, what we can do with it and how we can give back. And these are just such simple conversations within a business so that everybody is, you know, continuing to be able to keep platforms that allow for, you know, awareness and, you know, like, help to be promoted can stay mm. alive. But well, like you mentioned, like 
profit, but do it right. So if you're profiting, yeah. much of that's going back into the community that is also allowing you to have a reason to have that platform. We're just making change in general. Yeah. Like being a positive influence in the media. Yeah. And I much prefer talking to podcasters and talking on these types of platforms in comparison to, I did a podcast with like a quite a big um, media outlet in Australia and I wasn't made aware that it would actually be behind a paywall for like four or five months. And I, I obviously got to listen to it, but the reason I wanted to do it was for like people like my family members and myself when I was that age or my mom to have access, like to be taking away people's access to even listen to these stories and potentially get like valuable insights and resources is just like so gross. Or tell me that there's going to be a paywall, not after the fact, like simple, simple things, but yeah. We've heard a lot from survivors too, where as say a media outlet learns, survivors are willing to, and by survivors, I mean those that may have survived something or survivors like yourself or survivors Mm. of a loved one that was murdered. A lot of them are willing to give these media outlets a chance if they're showing that growth and showing that change and starting to do the right things. It doesn't matter. Just start doing it. Like you're Mm. not dooming yourself. Just start doing it because we continue to implement changes. We grow and work with people. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. We have something in the US called Court Appointed Special Advocate or CASA. We have that, but it's mostly for cases of like abuse and perhaps like really, really sticky divorce cases. I'm not sure how deep CASAs go, but I thought I would just mention it to you since you're trying to help implement these changes. That is something we have, at least when the child has been abused. But I think I'm with you like, it should be in any case, like especially mm. a 13 year old that has lost a parent. Like, where's the support? Even if there's a surviving parent that's in their life or not, like that's a huge change they're going through. And that surviving parent may also be grieving and may not be able to parent the best of their abilities. Mm. So, like, we can't, it's 2023. We can't rely on everybody having this quote, nuclear 1950s. Uh, family. It, it's not like that. And even then that was trash anyways and just uh, all of a sod. So it's like, we can't rely on that. So yeah, we need these supports, especially courts are scary as a kid too. Like I can imagine if you had to go experience anything like that with any of those people, it's probably really pretty overwhelming. Mm. It's actually interesting. I'd never actually even spoke. I did one police interview and that's it. Like it was just like, I fell off the face of the planet. Yeah. It was wild. But um. No, you make such valid and good points. Yeah. That's so cool. I would honestly just, because I get so passionate, but like some people it's too hard. So like a lot of my family members, they don't, like they retreat and they're like, this is, no, like the system is really bad. Let's just not bother. Whereas like, I'm like, no, (laughs) we need to fix it. I would like, I'm like, I want to go in with families and like help them. Like just, because you have to be like really loud and keep like yelling essentially. It's the Gen Z in you. You guys were, (laughs) I I believe you guys were put on this earth to like make the changes that like all the rest of us generations have like finally uncovered, but don't know what to do. And we've been up against and raising them. And you guys are like, absolutely not. We're not even participating in that. You're walking so Gen Alpha can run. So just keep doing what you're doing because you're a perfect prime example of where even in 10, 20 years, we can get our world and our systems. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, literally. Mm. I just want to bring us back to the conversation of true crime ethics for a minute. We touched on things you think should be done, but I would love to know what you think 
the responsibilities of true crime content creators are when they're in this genre. And beyond that, what about content consumers, true crime content consumers? What responsibility do they have? Yeah. Okay. I will try and be plain and simple. The first responsibility would be obviously checking with the family, to getting permission to do the case. If the, the people don't want to be involved, fair enough, but having that permission and consent to use their story is number one. Secondly, it would be providing the family, uh, like we talked about, giving them the interview questions if they request them or just giving them, even if they didn't request them, um, giving them the opportunity to listen back or watch back or read back any of the media that's going out to be circulated. So people can say things off the cuff, but they don't necessarily want that printed in media or shown. So just giving them that opportunity to redact things, making sure that they agree with like the kind of broad narrative that you're trying to put out about their loved one. Next, I would say having just the general respect and empathy for families and making sure that it's not just a quick, let's grab a quote from you and goodbye. So how I mean this is you've got your story planned out and you just need these little snippets from the family member to like really get that punchy point. It's like you've got to be prepared to listen to these people in entirety. Yeah, and just having a good reputation with like, say your brand, like your brand is true, like ethical true crime or victim focused, you know. So just really being clear that you do those things because then it makes people like myself, I was like, oh, I would I would go on this podcast because they literally stated in their bio, like they are victim-centered and ethical. Like it just makes people feel more at ease and just giving the short preamble like, yeah, make sure you're okay. If you don't like this, if you don't like that, don't have to answer any of these questions. Like just those types of things. And again, doing your research into the case and just more broadly say if it was a missing person's case, just knowing like what is appropriate and inappropriate to discuss. That would be as a creator. And then as a consumer, it's really difficult because it's super interesting true crime. Personally, I don't listen to it because it's like upsetting, but I know that it is really interesting. Like, and when I hear people, like when I meet them and talk to them about their stories, I'm like, wow, this is like very interesting and I like hearing about it and it just makes you feel connected. But when you're a consumer, it's it's hard because you don't you don't want to do the research. Most people are just like, this is cool. I want to watch it. Like um, I made the mistake of watching that movie without researching it before. So it's really like looking into where who's producing it, what their background is, and if the family gives consent is the main things that I would say as consumers. Thank you for that. That's so insightful. And I think one thing Paige and I are always on the same page about is that we're always trying to grow and be better. I think it comes down to accountability and consent, being transparent with what you're doing. And that seems to be a general theme with survivors that we've talked to and family members we've talked to and even other podcasters that are trying to do the same thing. It's this understanding of being transparent and really understanding that you may be telling the story, but it's not your story. So always ask for permission. Before we end today, do you have any advice for those listening who may be in a domestic violence situation or also have a missing loved one? The domestic violence situation is so hard to give like short, quick advice for. But if you're a child of domestic violence, uh, like I was, I would say, you know, you might be scared of being talking about your home situation and being getting in trouble. But the most important thing to do would be to tell someone, like confide in like a teacher or another family member, just so it's like 
on an adult mind's radar because like I just thought I was going to get in trouble for talking about the situation whereas I could have potentially reached out and I'm not saying I could have changed the situation but it, it could have put it on more people's radar um, that this was happening so then obviously an adult could reach out to another adult and talk to them. A um, really common thing is that people don't think that it's happening to them and they kind of believe that no, that would never happen to me. I'm not being abused because abuse isn't just physical. It's mental, psychological. It's it's so many different forms. People can control you in so many different ways. And I would say having clear boundaries and respect for yourself and know that you deserve to be treated properly. If you aren't getting that treatment, it is not okay and you have the right to leave. And going into leaving is really hard as well because... People don't leave for a variety of reasons, a key one being poverty. So I would say just knowing that there are support services out there that can help you and will help you through that time is really important. And it's not all on you and it's not your fault. And you can get out. Although it's going to be hard, you can get out and you deserve to get out would be what I would say to anyone experiencing domestic violence. It's so hard and it's so hard because every case is very complicated. In terms of missing persons, I would say... I deeply feel for you, firstly, and it's really sad, but it, it does. You, you need to do a lot of work to actually get the public to care about your loved one, and that could be simple as making a social media post. And it's like this shouldn't have to be what you have to do, but unfortunately, at the moment, it is. So, just finding like I know what we were speaking about before is like NIST. That's a charity that helps families in these situations. So, I would hope that there's something similar or people similar that help out in um, the US with these types of things. But, yeah, unfortunately, it's really depressing with missing person cases because I can't give you or say anything that's going to make you feel better because nothing can until your loved one's brought back to you. So it's about knowing that you have to take care of yourself and make sure that this case doesn't... It, I can't... I'm being so hypocritical because this case has consumed my life like, and it still will and it will for the rest of my life. But it's finding that balance of um, making sure you don't lose your mind literally over it because I've definitely been there before. Yeah, it's missing persons is so difficult. That's like a, you really need like specialized services for that as well. Thank you so much for your time and your insight into everything you shared with us today. Be sure to tell our listeners where they can find you on social media. Everywhere. It's just the Teen Greer Project. Uh, so yeah, follow along, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, that's that's all of them. And obviously the website is the Teen Degree Project as well. And yeah, uh, it's yeah, all the support I can get is amazing. Even a follow means a lot to me. So see you all there. <laughs> I love that. Thanks so much for joining us today. Make sure you follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries Pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.